Friends, good morning. The Lord be with you. I realized I forgot to introduce myself last week. Um, my name is Dave Bast, and I am uh, a former pastor here at Fifth Church. I'm the President Emeritus of Words of Hope. <laughs> I, I have that. I, I didn't realize I had that title until uh, they told me. But Words of Hope has long been closely associated here with Fifth and with other Reformed churches. Um, and uh, I'm happy to give them a little bit of a plug this morning, too. I don't know if you noticed, I, I hope you pay attention to the music in our services. It's all very carefully thought through and planned. So that wonderful medley we opened with on the holiness of God. Um, and then just now, that, that was a prayer. In the Reformed liturgy, we usually have a, what's called a prayer for illumination because we believe that in the sermon, though it's delivered by a human, uh, God is pleased to use through his spirit to speak himself to us. And so when we pray, word of God speak, what we're really praying is not just that God would speak, but that we would hear. And that's gonna be one of the themes for today, are you listening? How's your hearing? We're in um, now the second of a series called Seeing God. Um, he here it is, and I especially like the fact, okay, God is bright, if we get that. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit, how his presence is often manifested in bright light. But we really see him in his word as he is. Otherwise, it's just a vague sort of God idea. And so we're looking at a series of rather amazing stories where people actually saw God or, or saw something and what that reveals about him. I, I was, we were having dinner with friends earlier this spring and uh, one of them in particular can be kind of blunt and abrupt and I was explaining this series that I was planning and I was kind of getting into it. And, and she looked at me and she said, well, what does that mean to me? What's the point? And I stepped back and thought, that's a, that's a good question. And to answer it, I have three quotes that I'd like to share with you. Just, they, they kind of apply to the whole series. The first is one of my favorite quotes. I read it years ago from the classic book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And it goes like this, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. That's really true. A lot of people don't get that. But this is the thing. So as we see God revealed in Scripture, we come to know him. And that's not an end in itself. It's not merely intellectual. Here's a lovely prayer 
from St. Augustine that expresses what I hope happens with all of us. Eternal God, who are the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, grant us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom. And if you want that expressed a little more briefly and concisely, there's a famous prayer by a 13th century English bishop called Richard of Chichester. It was used in the musical Godspell. Now that, that may not still be popular, but it goes like this simply, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day. That's what we're hoping to do. So let's listen now to Isaiah's great vision where he saw the Lord. Scripture reading today from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then... I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered me, Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot here. <laughs> As one dear old pastor remarked, oh, the well is deep here. And I'm going to try to do the whole chapter, which is fairly unusual. Uh, often that last part, which is uh, not quite so positive, is omitted. So last week, uh, if you were here or saw it online, uh, we looked at Moses' great vision of God in the wilderness where he sees the goodness of God pass by as he's sheltered in the cleft of a rock and he can't see God's face, but he sees his back. What a great story. Well, today, in contrast, we know exactly when and where Isaiah's vision took place because he introduces it by telling us in the year that King Uzziah died. And that deserves a little teasing out because it's significant for what he sees. Um, King Uzziah, I don't, I don't know how up you are on your Old Testament. I had to look up a lot of this stuff myself, but uh, King Uzziah actually reigned during what was probably the last good times in the kingdom of Israel. He reigned for 30 years. Uh, it was a time of prosperity, a time of relative peace. Uh, he was a good king by and large, but then uh, there came a strange event that brought about his downfall. He had decided that being king wasn't enough he also wanted to be a priest, and so he offered sacrifices in the temple, and he was stricken with leprosy. And so bear that in mind. Make a note of that, leprosy. So he spent the last 20 years of his life shut away in quarantine, almost in prison, and his son Azariah reigned in his place. So it's about the year 740 BC when Azariah dies finally. And there are signs on the horizon that the good times may be drawing to an end, almost as if his death is an omen. Because there's a great new power, an empire arising in the north, in the land of Assyria. I imagine if you were living in Europe during the 1930s, say in the Netherlands or in France, and you were well-to-do and you had a comfortable life and you had all the luxury you, know, you wanted, and yet on the horizon to the north, dark clouds are gathering. That was the time. Isaiah was a priest, so he goes into the temple on his uh, duties, discharging his, there were daily duties uh, for the priests inside the temple. And on this particular day, as he comes into the temple, when the country is, is still prosperous but unsettled, he sees the Lord, almost. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The throne was the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And somehow Isaiah had a glimpse of God enthroned, as the Old Testament says, he's enthroned upon the cherubim. But what he actually sees is not the figure of God, but his robe spilling over, filling the temple. And then he sees above God the seraphim. There were two cherubs, cherubs, of course, on the lid of the ark, and also um, above the ark. Uh, if you read the, I, I just happened to read the account of Solomon's building of the temple in 1 Kings 7. And there were these two giant cherubim. Now the seraphim are a different sort of creature, apparently. We, we don't really know, although in the Middle Ages, theologians loved to speculate about the orders of the angels. There were nine of them, they decided. And the seraphim were at the top. They were like archangels. <laughs> well, no, actually, they were higher than archangels. That was a lower order. And these amazing creatures, incidentally, we're going to see something that looks a lot like them next week, had six wings, three pairs. So with two of them, they covered their bodies modestly. Although, do angels have bodies? I don't know. With two of them, they were flying above the one who was seated on the throne. And with two of them, they covered their faces in the presence of the holiness of God. Veiled their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 God Most High. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, King of the armies of heaven, heaven and earth are full of your glory. I remember, th this is the Sanctus. It's often been set to music. Uh, we sang a version of it this morning. The greatest, perhaps, if you'll pardon me for revealing my uh, prejudice, the greatest is Bach's setting in the B minor Mass, the Sanctus. Uh, every Mass, incidentally, that's set to music has the Sanctus as one of its five sections. It's part of our great prayer of thanksgiving in our communion liturgy. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Uh, you will have heard somewhere, uh, perhaps if you're uh, familiar with the Bible or a regular churchgoer, that the Hebrew language didn't employ adverbs. Instead, when they wanted to emphasize or modify a, a noun or an adjective, they would double it. There's a place in the Old Testament where they're describing gold of Ophir, which was like the best, and they called it gold gold. Um, really good gold. Uh, Jesus famously does this with the word amen, which means it is so or so be it. Amen, I tell you, it's true. And sometimes he'll say, amen, amen, it's really true. But there's only one place in the Bible 
where a word is tripled. Wow. I wonder how many of us, if we were asked, what is the most intense, deep quality of God, would reply, holiness? It's the only adjective that's tripled. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God of hosts. That's what they sing as they fly, as they veil. What does it mean? Well, yes, it means moral purity. That's what we tend to think. Uh, and we're right. It means God's utter goodness, his infinite infinite purity. But there's a little more to it even than that. And I want to give a shout out to a podcast that I came upon fairly lately called The Bible Project. Is anybody familiar with The Bible Project? Okay. If you want to take a deep dive into the Bible, I can recommend The Bible Project. If you got a little Bible nerd in you, and I happened to be listening to one and they started talking about the holiness of God. So I perked up my ears and they talked about it in connection with the idea of holy and unclean or impure. And of course, that's what we hear immediately in Isaiah's reaction. Isaiah's, notice his, how he reacts. Woe is me, I am ruined. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I've heard anybody say, woe is me. Uh, it sounds a little archaic, doesn't it? A little Bible talk. Uh, so as John might say, put on your Bible decoder ring. What he's really saying is, I, I don't dare. <laughs> Imagine the expletive you might use when you realize your goose is cooked. You are in the soup. That's what he's saying. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'll leave it at that. I'm dead. That's how the message translates his next response. I'm ruined. I'm dead. Because I'm unclean. So this is where the ritual idea of God's holiness comes in. He is holy versus sin, yeah. But he's also holy versus impurity or uncleanness. And that's because he is the, his holiness is his life. He is the God of life. And the whole idea of what is unclean or impure in the Old Testament is that it smacks somehow of death. So Leviticus... The whole central section of Leviticus is known by scholars as the holiness code. And God says in Leviticus 19 verse 2, you shall be holy because I am holy. Have you ever puzzled all, about all that unclean stuff, all those laws and rules in the Old Testament? If you haven't, forgive me. I'll, I'll only spend a couple minutes here. But it's, it's interesting. The variety of things, what do they have in common? What's the point? I mean, food, animals, uh, people, physical afflictions, 
all impure, all unclean, all banned from God's presence. But one way or another, most of them are linked to death. So animals that are unclean are scavengers, like jackals and hyenas and crabs. Nasty things. And pigs. Pigs will eat anything. Clean animals that you can consume are grass feeders. They're ruminants. Uh, Blood is unclean because to lose blood is to lose your life. Bodily emissions are unclean. Sores and skin diseases like leprosy and and it covers a variety, that's unclean. Even buildings can become unclean if they have leprosy in their walls, i.e. mold. And the ultimate unclean thing is a corpse. Death cannot abide in the presence of the holiness of God. It has no business there. Which is what makes Jesus' ministry so utterly remarkable. What does he do? The first miracle he performs after the Sermon on the Mount, a leper comes up to him and bows before him and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you could heal me. And Jesus, Matthew says, reaches out his hand and touches him. A little girl lies dead in her room and Jesus comes in and shoes away all the people wailing and he takes her by the hand, a corpse, and he says, Talitha kumi, get up, little girl. A woman who's bleeding and has been for 12 years touches just the hem of his robe and she's healed. See, Jesus has reverse contamination going. He is the Holy One, utterly pure, utterly without sin, who can't be made unclean by unclean things and unclean people, but who in turn makes them pure. I love this line from Frederick Beekner's Godric. I read it years ago where Godric says in conclusion at the end of the book, all the death that ever was set next to life would not fill a cup. See, life in God overcomes death. Because we're unclean, aren't we? If not at present, someday we will be. I know this is hard to imagine, but you're going to be a corpse. And so am I. But that won't be the end. So, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm unclean. And, and he adds this. I think this is helpful too. Isaiah says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're all unclean. One of the biggest problems we're facing, you know this, is that we have a tendency to think that whatever the issue is, the trouble is with them. Am I right? The trouble is with them. 
You know who they are. And Isaiah says, no, the trouble is with us. It's a very different attitude. And a very biblical one. We're all in this together. We are unclean, my people and I. And then comes this wonderful way God deals with it. So uh, we pick it up in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Isn't that interesting? Why did he use tongs? I would think a burning The word seraph, by the way, means burning one. So, you know, you'd think he could just pick it up. But no, he uses tongs. And uh, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, what's going on there? Well, let me call a very wise and profound uh, scholar, especially in the book of Isaiah, Alec Motier. John has quoted him and used him before. Alec Motier explains what lies behind this action. And the key thing to note is that it's a call from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, which would have been outside the temple, where the daily lamb, the burnt offering to atone for the people's sin, was, uh, was offered morning and evening every day in the courtyard of the temple. So Motir writes this, the meaning is not purification by fire, which is not really an Old Testament idea. The coal represents the fire in the altar, the fiery holiness of God, which has spent itself on a substitutionary sacrifice and is satisfied. The sacrifice of atonement. You know that um, Paul calls Jesus the sacrifice of atonement in Romans chapter 3? This is a symbol of the ultimate way in which God would deal both with our sin and our uncleanness by offering a substitute, a sacrifice of atonement. So the angel says this, literally, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And you need both those things. Both those things go together. You can't have your guilt taken away unless your sin is atoned for. But if your sin is atoned for, then your guilt is taken away. That's how the gospel works. That's the basic message. And we're seeing, this is the gospel according to Isaiah. Uh, and it gets even more explicit as you read on in this, the greatest of Old Testament books, Isaiah 53. You know, read it. It's like Isaiah's describing the crucifixion as if he was there. So Isaiah is forgiven. His sin is atoned for. Provisionally, I, I think the blood of Jesus was applied to him at that very moment in some eternal calculus that we don't fully understand. That's how it worked. And then comes a call. Because uh, he, th this is one of the themes of Isaiah. I, I didn't really 
go into the background in chapter five. Isaiah five is fascinating. It's a whole series of woes where God is pronouncing the woe on the people. It, it has the parable of the vineyard, which becomes very famous. Jesus would make use of it, where Israel is compared to a vineyard that, um, that God has carefully planted and he's protected it and he's treasured it and he's made these vines grow up and he comes to look for fruit and what he finds is stink fruit, not good grapes. Because God is like a business person. He wants ROI, you know? Hey, that was pretty good. John's not the only one who can throw these business terms around. You know what ROI is? Return on investment. That's exactly the point of Isaiah 5. Look at what God has done for his people. He wants return on investment. He wants to see fruit. And when he doesn't get it, something's going to happen. So God has a mission for Isaiah to perform. And here's the call. Here comes the call. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. One of the most profound things I, I can ever remember reading uh, was in a devotional by Oswald Chambers. I don't know if any, he was a classic early 20th century. His book of devotion, he, he was a Christian worker uh, in the Middle East, I think, in the days of the British Empire. And he was a well-known um, devotional speaker and writer. He died young, and after his death, his wife compiled a series of his devotional messages into a little devotional book that she called My Utmost for His Highest. It was a classic in its day. And I happened to be reading one of those. It happened to be on Isaiah 6. And he said about this verse, you know that when God calls people to service, he does so by asking for volunteers? Well, have you been waiting for God to call you to do something for him and you think he's got to somehow shake you physically or you got to see a, a vision like Isaiah? And all the time he's saying, who will go for me? Every time you see the VBS announcement come up, it's God calling. Who will serve me? Who will do that, big or small? You know, it may not be to proclaim the word of God like Isaiah, but that's God's call. And Isaiah responds, hey, I'll do it. Use me, will you? And here comes the hard part. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, 
and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What's going on there? Do you know that Jesus quoted that passage in connection with his parables? He did. Because the point is, whenever God speaks, it's an invitation to check your hearing. Are you really listening? Really? Do you want to hear his voice? Because if you don't, every time you hear God's word and you sort of brush it off for you, it becomes a little harder to hear it next time. And even harder the next time. And the next, and the next. Until eventually, there will come a point where you just don't hear it at all. In fact, you can't hear it. Because you've hardened your ears so much. This runs throughout the Bible. Book of Revelation, the seven letters. Each one ends this way, whoever has ears, let them hear. Well, we all have ears. We hear, but do we hear? That's the question. And Isaiah says, oh man, you mean I'm just going to have to, and there's going to be no response? It's a comfort, incidentally, to every preacher who's ever stood up here preaching his eyes off or her eyes and knowing that most of the people out there aren't really listening. They're thinking about their Sunday afternoon plans or you know, what they're going to have for lunch or in the fall it's usually about the lions. So, yeah, I know. I know what you're doing out there. Don't you want to hear What if he's calling you? So Isaiah says, okay, how long do I have to do this? And God says, until utter destruction has come on the land. Utter destruction. Which would happen. Which did happen. And the nation lies devastated. And the city's in ruin. And the trees have been chopped down. And the people are gone. Maybe a tenth of them left. But here's the thing. (laughs) Here's the thing. God's final word is never judgment. There's always hope. And the last thing he says to Isaiah is that there's a holy seed left in the stump. And as we know, as Isaiah himself would prophesy, the day would come when a shoot would grow out of the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon the servant of the Lord, and righteousness would gird his loins, and he would bring a message of hope and salvation. And, that, and one day, says Isaiah, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. 
as the waters cover the sea. So friends, the holiness of God. Are you listening? Do you want to bear fruit? Are you willing to say, here I am, I'll go. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's spend a few moments in reflection, shall we?